0: Well, good morning, Living Hope Church. Whoa. Good morning, good morning. Uh, before I begin, I just want to start by um, expressing my gratitude uh, for this church. Um, I didn't know what to expect and where God was going to lead me when I stepped into those doors at William Gage, where Harvest Brampton uh, used to happen. And, uh, you know, it's just been a journey ever since. Uh, the pastors, the staff, the people of this church have poured their life into me and have molded me and have made me, helped make me the man that I am today. And so I'm deeply humbled and grateful to bring forth the Word of God to you as I've been a recipient of God's Word uh, on a weekly basis when I attended this church. So it's my desire to give it back to you and feed the Word of God to you. So. uh, Why don't you do me a solid and open your Bible to Mark chapter 7, open your Bible to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be looking specifically at verse 24 of 7 into 8 verse 9. Mark 7, 24 to 8 verse 9, the title of my message this morning is Some Crumbs, Some Spit, and Some Loaves. Mark 7, 24, here's what the word of God says. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he calls his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Uh, let me pray one more time as we get into this. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, right now with this beautiful stories in the gospel of Mark. Lord, we learn of you in so many profound ways as you encounter these these three individuals and or these three stories. And and Father, our, our prayer is that you would have our hearts open, that you would, Holy Spirit, work in us in such a way where we're able to focus on your voice through your word. Father, I pray that you would set a guard over my mouth, that I would not say anything that is dishonorable to you, but I would speak what is true. I would speak what your people need to hear. And spirit, you would apply it in a way in which your people must go and live out this word. I pray this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. From the day we're born, we are in need of help. And as we grow up, this help might not look like when it once did when we were children, but the fact remains, we are always in need of help. We need help in accordance to the different needs we have, right? Changing tires, fixing technology, studying for tests, cooking steak, right? Are you a person that grills or puts it on a cast iron? I'm of the persuasion that cast iron is the way. But the list for this can go on. Now, there comes a point, though, where although we know we need help, we don't want to get the help. South Asian parents are a wonderful example of this. And I'm purposely leaving out the Caribbean and the African parents because I don't want a mob of people in the lobby just pulling out spatulas and taking off their shoes, ready to beat me up, right? So we're gonna stick with the South Asian parents, all right? Now, my my parents are from Sri Lanka, and I love them. South Asian parents are some of the hardest working people I know. Hardest working people I know. Without asking for help, they will cook, they will clean, they will get up on rooftops, they will plant flowers, they will do all sorts of laundry. Even children that are not their own, they'll do their laundry too, right? They'll do this without asking for help. But then, you know, you're in a family gathering, And there's the uncles, and there's the aunties, and there's the relatives that your parents say you know, but you don't actually know them. And they say to everybody there, my kids don't help me with anything. You didn't ask. You literally did not ask. Why? Why are you doing me like that, Amma? Oh. Look, we're bad at asking for help. We're bad, not just just South Asian parents, but I'm bad at asking for help. You're bad at asking for help. We all are. You know, one of the ways we can understand the gospel is like this. Jesus Christ came to this earth to help us. He helped us in the greatest way possible by giving up his life for us on a cross so we could have eternal life. And if you follow the story of the Bible carefully, this promise of salvation came first to those who are Jewish. But as you move through the storyline of Scripture, we see that this kind of help is actually offered to those who are not only Jewish, but Gentile, which is us, which is us. Now, as wonderful and beautiful as that is, there's a choice involved. The help is made available. Are you going to take him up on his offer? In the following passages of Mark, Jesus demonstrates again and again that part of his mission in bringing about this glorious help of salvation wasn't just to a specific people group. Rather, he came to offer salvation to all who will believe especially those who are not first in line. Listen, what Mark is going to demonstrate to us in a nutshell is this. Jesus invites everyone to be saved because everyone is in need of salvation. Jesus invites everyone to be saved because everyone is in need of salvation. Salvation, we'll make better sense of this by exploring three encounters under three points. Here's our first Jesus offers salvation to those who acknowledge it. Jesus offers salvation to those who acknowledge it. Verse 24 of chapter 7 And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Jesus is constantly changing locations in the Gospels, and he does so once again from what seems like Gennesaret. He's now in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre is actually modern-day Lebanon. What's important for us to know about this place? Well, in the Old Testament, Tyre was actually known to be very dark, very sinful. The Jewish historian Josephus classified Tyre as one of Israel's bitterest enemies. This is the area Jesus left Galilee for. It's no coincidence that earlier in chapter 7, he talked about what's clean and unclean. Tyre would be thought of as unclean by Jewish people because it had Gentiles living there. The city is one thing. The people are another And though Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus of Galilee or why he wants to be hidden, soon enough, we see things unfold through someone who bursts onto the scene. Verse 25, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. It's hard enough asking people for help sometimes, but asking for help while you're on the floor, I mean, that's a whole other kind of desperation. The woman we're introduced to has no name, and neither does her daughter. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is the fact that her daughter is possessed by a demon, The situation is completely beyond her. She can't do anything about it, and nobody else can. And that's exactly why she's falling at the feet of Jesus. I love this. Mark says, the woman heard of him. The woman heard of him. If you had a family member who got really sick, and nobody in the area could do something about it, But you found out that there's a doctor four hours away who could do something about that sickness. You would drop everything and drive there in a heartbeat. The name and ministry of Jesus drives this woman to the presence of Christ and on the floor to demonstrate her helplessness and desperation. And instead of giving us a name, Mark seeks to highlight her ethnicity. She's a Greek-speaking Syrophoenician. The Syro is meant to highlight Syria. In Matthew, she's called a Canaanite. The Old Testament teaches us that they were unbelieving pagans who lived in the land of Israel. All of this informs us that she would be judged, she would be looked down upon by Jews. Like, if people saw Jesus interacting with someone like that, which I'm sure they did, would immediately tell Christ to get away from her, get away from her. She's a phoenician. But do you see, she couldn't care less about her background or what others would think of her, including Jesus, because her daughter was in need of cleansing. The text tells us she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, When was the last time you were this desperate before the Lord? In fact, was there ever a time in your life where your prayer request led you to beg God? Or are you too prideful to act like that before him? Are you ashamed to beg? Clearly, this woman Was not ashamed of anyone and it turns out Jesus respects it verse 27 and he said to her "Let the children be fed first but it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs we read that and we're like oh Jesus you're so sweet wait what did you just say am I hearing this right did you just call her a dog now In case that makes you feel uncomfortable, let's address a couple of things here. Firstly, Jesus isn't denying her request, right? This should be highlighted from the get-go. Secondly, he's speaking in the language of a parable. This is a common way Jesus spoke. You read the Gospels and commonly he's speaking in parables. Now the parable here, right, is is meant to do two things, right? It's meant to show us who who, who do the Israelites represent. They represent, or sorry, the children represent Israelites, which is the Jewish people. Dogs represent Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And you might be thinking, okay, it doesn't make it any better, Kalen. Okay, let's keep going. Thirdly, despite dogs being a pretty big insult back then, here, Jesus isn't calling the woman, uh, the woman the same thing because dog is written differently in the Greek. So the way Jesus is actually using this word is in the sense of it being a lovable pet. Fourthly, having understood children to represent Israelites, Jesus says, they got to eat first. It's his way of saying salvation comes to them first. Now, this is where things become really amazing because Jesus doesn't just say that to rub it in her, her face, He chooses each word wisely because he's actually testing out the faith of this woman. And we see it's got positive results. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the dogs. There's all sorts of responses people give to Jesus. This That's probably one of the most beautiful ones. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This statement carries humility, faith, respect. It's precious. And it only amplifies what we've been seeing. By identifying herself and even her daughter as a dog, she's proving it's not the dirty, offensive term that was commonly used back then. This woman knows whom she's talking to, and she knows this. She shows us this by calling Jesus Lord. And while on that note, she understands the parable. Do you see that? She knows Jesus is actually talking about salvation, coming to the Israelites first. But she also acknowledges two other things. She acknowledges that God always meant for salvation to come to both Jews and Gentiles, as we read in Genesis 12, verse three. She also acknowledges that God's promise to give salvation to Gentiles doesn't have to wait any longer. It can actually be obtained now, while the children are eating. The dogs can eat too. The arrival of Jesus, the arrival of God's kingdom breaking into the here and now means Gentiles can repent and believe just like Jews can and should repent and believe in Christ. So because the woman knew her place in God's plan of salvation, Jesus saw her faith as something worthy of being rewarded. We see this in verses 29 to 30, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. She passed the test of faith with flying colors. And that's so incredibly important to point out because it's another reminder of how the Bible values women. In Mark's gospel, she's actually the first to hear and truly understand Jesus' parable. Whereas up until this point, even Jesus' own disciples don't understand what he's saying. Isn't that crazy? I want to mention this because you will hear people say all kinds of negative things about the Bible, especially how it thinks and treats of women. But the only person to ever treat women the best way possible is the one who created them. Amen? Amen. God loves women. And recording instances like this continue to prove he doesn't see them as people of lower value. Don't buy into that lie. And on that note, don't buy into the lie that God is not able to deal with your desperate situation. Because again, we see Jesus meeting the women's seemingly impossible requests by just using his words. You notice he's not even there. He just uses his words, and the daughter is healed like that. Look, Jesus has authority over death, over demons, over diseases, and he has authority over all the burdens of your life. How he will meet them is purely in his hands. The greater question for us to ask is how will he use our desperate situations to point to his glory and greater story? He did that with the woman's situation by using it to tell us of his grand plan of salvation, a plan that you and I can be a part of right now if we repent and place our faith in the finished work of Christ. A plan that was made known to the Jews first, but soon came to us Gentiles too, something Jesus continues to expand upon as we look at our second encounter Jesus brings salvation to those who are unaware of it. Jesus brings salvation to those who are unaware of it. In verses 31 and 32, he continues to travel around with the goal of bringing the gospel to Gentile regions. And just like the Syrophoenician woman made a dramatic appearance on the scene, we have a similar scenario. This time around, it's a man brought to Jesus by what appears to be his friends, And the reason they bring him to Jesus is because he's both deaf and mute. These friends are begging. There's that word again. They're begging Jesus to lay his hand on him with the hopes of healing him. Let's see what happens in verses 33 to 35. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven, and he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus treated this man with individual respect and dignity. He wasn't looking to make a show out of healing him because Jesus isn't concerned about looking good in front of others, and neither should we. Right, Jesus taking this guy aside is another reminder that we shouldn't use others as a stepping stool to look good. Now, let's talk about Jesus' COVID-friendly healing methods. Spitting, right? There's nothing like getting healing from spit, right? Look, I know, I know, most of us find that pretty gross. But in Jesus' day... There were special scenarios where Jews actually believed spit had healing powers when it was used in a specific way along with prayer. Now Jesus does what he does best and proceeds to heal the man by physically touching him. The most probable reason Jesus makes the healing so physical is because it's his way of communicating compassion to somebody who's hurting. I point this out because ultimately, the power to heal this man is not in the touch of Jesus as much as it is in the words of Jesus. He looked to heaven. He prayed. Declared the words, "Be opened," and everything was healed. His authority is revisited again and again and again. But listen, so is his tender-heartedness. So is his willingness to feel for those who are suffering. If you're like me, sometimes you struggle with how to think about God because one aspect of his character takes priority over other aspects of his character. Jesus going out of his way to heal this man through touch shows us how we ought to have a balanced view of our Lord. Yes, he's all-powerful. He's able to heal with just the word. But he's also full of love. He's tender, he's gentle. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's who Jesus is. He wants to come alongside of you in your pain and remind you that you're not alone. For those of you who are suffering right now, I hope you find encouragement in that. Approach Jesus. He's not a king who is far off. He has come near. He's taken on flesh and he steps into your mess. He doesn't care about getting his robes dirty to be with you. He wants to be with you. Approach him like that. That's the kind of God. That's the kind of king that we serve. After working another miracle, Jesus restores the man who at one point was deaf and unable to talk. And before we look at the reaction of those watching, I want to bring our attention to the Greek word used to describe mute or unable to talk. And just so you know, I mean, Roy gave my credentials there. Look, I don't know a lick of Greek, okay? I, I still carry a load of shame for the times people have asked if I completed Greek at seminary, and I'm like, no. I still feel disappointment when I share that with Sister Liz Mitchell, who is your ambassador for Greece here. Forgive me, Liz. I can't even get gyro right. Is it gyro? Is it gyro? Is it gear? I don't know. Anyways, anyways, the Greek word used there, here, is only used in another place. And that place is Isaiah 35, listen to this, okay. Isaiah 35 marks an important shift in the book because leading up to chapter 35 is a series of judgments on various places, including Tyre, the geographical region of our text. Now what happens in Isaiah 35 is that it shifts from God saying he's gonna to judge to God saying he's going to bring joy to those who are his people. He's gonna redeem what's been broken. And in verse 2, Lebanon is said to receive joy with singing, and the singing is done, get this, by those who are mute, because their mouths have been opened. What we have then is a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied, because as I said earlier, Lebanon is modern-day Tyre and Sidon. It's fulfilled because Jesus Christ brings salvation to those Gentile regions. The Syrophoenician woman knew of this salvation, but for many of us who are Gentiles, we didn't know of Christ's salvation. We didn't know how much we needed it. But Jesus, being the compassionate God that he is, brought it to us anyways. Because even though many of us are blessed to speak effortlessly and hear accurately, spiritually, without Christ, it's a whole other situation. Without Christ, spiritually, our speech is twisted and our ears refuse to listen to God. The situation is unable to be fixed apart from the healing touch of Christ, the one who came to this earth as a sinless man, lived a perfect life, and died a death that we deserved. But because he died and three days later he rose, we who are spiritually blind, deaf, and mute can have our ears unplugged, our tongues released, and our eyes opened. Who here has not received the healing touch of Christ? Are you here today and you have not received the healing touch of Christ? I don't know what's holding you back, but please come to Jesus. Come to him. Let him touch you in a way that will change you for your whole life. You can do this by repenting of your sin and trusting in what he did on the cross. Salvation has come. And although we might not think twice about trusting in Jesus, he makes sure we realize our need for him. You know, the thing about being unaware of something is that you will have things in your life that tell you I need something more than this. I'm just not sure what it is. And one of those things is actually our hunger. We eat and have our stomachs satisfied physically. But our hunger tells us that there's something more out there that can satisfy us completely. And that's what brings us to our final point. Jesus offers salvation to those who are hungry for it. Jesus offers salvation to those who are hungry for it. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. In the beginning of chapter 8, we come to a second feeding story. And because it's a second one, it's normal to ask, is Mark repeating, you know, the same story here? And when you compare the feeding of the 5,000 with the 4,000, you realize they're actually different. And the most important difference has to do with what we've been looking at so far, Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. This incident is about him ministering to Gentiles, while the other feeding, the feeding of the 5,000, is his ministry to the Jews. And one of the easiest ways we can tell who Jesus is going to feed is by their acceptance of him. Notice how he says they've been with him. He's pointing out how these people have intentionally followed him around for three days. They're eager to hear from Jesus. They have a sense he's got something they need, even though they can't quite put their words to it. The Jews, on the other hand, they demonstrated hard heartedness toward him. They constantly gave Jesus a difficult time. In light of this, Jesus says, it says, he had gut wrenching compassion. Gut wrenching compassion. It's deeper than just, you know, reading the word compassion, it's a gut wrenching compassion for these Gentiles. He cares. He cares about their spiritual well being, He cares about their physical well being. Remember, these are people the Jews wouldn't bother caring about. But Jesus, he cares for people who are pushed away. He cares for the people thought of as gross, dirty, unacceptable. Now when it comes to his disciples in this scenario, unfortunately, we get another typical response Verse 4, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread in this desolate place? You would think after watching and participating in Jesus feeding 5,000 people, they wouldn't even question how to feed them, right? Oh, yeah, you did that, right? Okay, cool, right? No, but because they still don't completely understand who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing, he doesn't actually tackle their unbelief right away, but eventually he does in the gospel of Mark. Instead, he proceeds to direct the disciples with the stuff they've got, seven loaves and a few small fish. And he ends up multiplying them to feed 4,000 people, which included men, women, and children. And in verse 8, we read, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets Full. This reminds me of my family parties. You come, you eat, and you eat some more. And then by the end of it, it's like, by the way, take some leftovers. And Tupperware is just being thrown everywhere. Hey, catch it. All right, yeah, boom, boom, boom. Right? Take it and eat, and you have food for days, weeks, months, years. <laughs> Look, what's spectacular about Jesus is that he doesn't just multiply enough, right, just enough of these few ingredients. When he brings down a blessing, it overflows in abundance. It's kind of like, if you weren't satisfied enough, there's still some more, help yourself. But our text tells us there was no need for it because they were satisfied. This past week, uh, GCC churches from all over Canada gathered at Hope Bible Church in Oakville And the conference ended with a message entitled, Press On Towards the Great Commission. And it dawned on me, as I was thinking of this message and preaching it to you right now, part of the reason we must press on towards the Great Commission, because there's a world out there that's not satisfied. Many of them are unsatisfied because they're looking for it in all the wrong places. They hunger for something more. An attempt to get rid of that hunger through relationships, Netflix binging, money, sex, academic achievements, social media, video games, and much more. These people have had their fix of white bread, rye bread, whole wheat, pumpernickel, sourdough, but they haven't tasted and been satisfied with the bread of life. Who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell them about it? Amen. Who's going to lead them to this bread, right? Who's going to show them that the way that we go about eating the bread of life is through repenting of our sins and trusting what Christ did on the cross. See, just like Jesus invited the Syrophoenician woman, the mute man, and the 4,000, he wants to invite them Because in a nutshell, what Mark is trying to tell us from some crumbs, some spit, and some loaves is this, Jesus invites everyone to be saved because everyone is in need of salvation. If you haven't experienced this salvation, turn to Christ. If you have experienced this salvation, then please go out into this world filled with souls that are spiritually famished, Point them to the bread, the bread that as we read in John 6, verse 51, if anyone eats of it, they will live forever. They will live forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, many of us as recipients of the great salvific work that you have accomplished through your Son. You've applied it by the Holy Spirit, and we're here worshiping you. What a beautiful thing it is to sing these songs of worship unto you, Lord. And, um, but for many of us here today, we don't know Jesus. And I'm praying, God, I'm praying, God, that through hearing this, through hearing of the kind of God that you are, Lord Jesus, that people would turn from their life of sin, and they would put their faith in the finished work of Christ, and for those of us, again, who have been recipients of the salvation, thank you for it, but let us express our gratitude by showing it, telling of it, displaying it to this world that doesn't know you, Lord. Would we go in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit that you gave us, the Spirit that we read about in Acts? Those things can still happen if we truly trust and pray our hearts out and depend on you. You can bring revival to this country. Pray that you would work mightily in Christ's name, amen.